David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. But uh, maybe the juiciest thing that Google is involved in, just to uh, mention this because everyone's always interested in this, uh, Google, for all of its beautiful, high ideals, and the point of this, of this isn't that we shouldn't have ideals or hold people to them. My point is these guys are monopolists and they aren't going to stick by the ideals they say they have. So classic case here was Google and Apple's somewhat famous wage-fixing conspiracy. This is a big case about some corporate practices when these online tech platforms were growing very, very quickly and becoming the giant firms they are today. Google was growing quickly at this time, and so was the brand new one, which was Facebook at that point. That's Rob Larson, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Rob Larson on Technopolis. The five biggest corporations in the world by market value are Google, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and Facebook. Their head honchos, Zuckerberg, Gates, and Bezos, make Vanderbilt, Morgan, and Carnegie of the Gilded Age look like pikers. These masters of mankind, as Adam Smith called them, love to pay lip service to competition. But you know what? They want absolute domination and control. Monopoly is not a board game for them. It is the essence of their very being. The big five capitalist firms dominate the means of work and social interaction. Collectively, these technopolies represent a tremendous concentration of power, both economic and political, which do not bode well for the needs of a democratic society. Their amassing of our data is threatening. What can be done? Our guest today is Rob Larson. He's professor of economics at Tacoma Community College in Washington State. His articles appear in Jacobin, In These Times, and Dollars and Cents. He's the author of Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley. He spoke at Town Hall in Seattle in early March 2020. And now, Rob Larson. It's a pleasure to see you all tonight. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, big tech, as we say, uh, Silicon Valley and the uh, technology platforms. And it's kind of interesting, you know, because we all depend so much uh, on these platforms and the legitimately useful services that they provide, Google, Amazon, and others. Uh, those services are very handy. But the thing that we notice uh, the most about the giant firms we have today of big tech is that they tend to be characterized by what we economists call network effects. Now, in economics, uh, if you take basic econ at the high school level, uh, we tend to treat markets and industries in the economy like they're all the same. So we'll talk about supply and demand, and we reach some pleasant equilibrium where everyone is satisfied. And the tendency is to treat markets like they're all essentially the same. But what happens if you really look at modern industries and they're unique – you see they have a lot of unique characteristics. I mean, after all, we produce so many different goods and services, you know, shoes and sandwiches and cars and smartphone chips and back rubs and Hollywood movies. All of these are market goods and services. Well, they're so different. 
why would the markets themselves all be the same? And in fact, they have a lot of different characteristics. So these big tech markets tend to be driven by a very conventionally recognized economic phenomenon that we call network effects. Right? And network effects occur when the value to you of a service increases as more people use it. Okay. So like if you buy a pair of sneakers, if you buy a pair of Adidas running shoes, they have a certain usefulness to you. Well, if I buy myself my own pair of Adidas sneakers, yours don't become any more useful to you. They're just unrelated facts, right? On the other hand, if you are on a social media network like Facebook or YouTube or Instagram, you're on there, and then I join that network, the network becomes slightly more valuable to you because there's one more party, one more person with whom you might connect or interface with or share your own content with. That's the weird feature of network mediated markets where a lot of the value comes from connecting with another user as more users join a network it gains value and that has a number of major ramifications for how the markets behave so social media is a good example youtube is also useful if you have video of some important development in the world that you want to share and get people to see and think about and act upon what are you going to do? You want to share it on the video sharing network that has the greatest audience, that has the greatest number of users. And of course, in reality, that's going to be YouTube. And look, I love Vimeo as much as the next guy, but it's not where you're going to put your video if your priority is to get it in front of the biggest possible audience. You'll use Google's YouTube. That's a manifestation of that network effect. That network, that YouTube uh, network is so useful to you, not because you love the platform particularly, but because of the giant audience that's there. And that giant audience attracts more video creators, and the presence of all those creators makes it more magnetic to more users. Just like Facebook or social media, as more people join it, it becomes more useful to you as someone who has posts or content to share. And so it becomes more magnetically attractive to other content creators and social media profile developers. It's that positive uh, reinforcement, that self-reinforcing effect that is what network effects is all about. And I have to tell you, uh, if you look at the histories of today's social media and today's big tech companies in general, Many of them, their founders were aware of network effects and their economic ramifications when they created them. And they recognized if we get a lead over our competitors early in the history of our industry, we can become completely dominant because people are magnetically, gravitationally almost attracted to this uh, particular platform because it has the most users. So in network effect mediated industries, Early leaders, early incumbents in markets are especially likely to build up a lead and to become maybe a monopolist or at the least an oligopolist, right? So in economics, we use the word oligopoly to describe markets that have not quite a monopoly. There's not just one single dominant firm that controls the industry, but maybe two or three, some small number. So those of you who have smartphone uh, smartphones on your person right now, which I'm guessing is 100% of you, they're going to be running operating system software that makes the phone work. It's going to be made by Apple through its iOS operating system software or Google through its Android uh, OS. Those are the two. <laughs> 
It's a small number of firms, you know. These are network, man, uh, network effect manifestations. It means these markets are more prone than other markets within the capitalist economy to become monopolized. Now, of course, in the rest of the economy, we definitely have monopoly. You know, in the early days before we had any anti-monopoly laws, we had monopolies in oil, <laughs> something as important as oil, through Rockefeller's old standard oil monopoly and in steel, and in tobacco, for you smokers, the American Tobacco Company. Now, in the 1910s, it became sort of illegal to have these monopolies, at least for a time. These days, monopolies are only partially illegal. It sort of depends on how you get them. But that's the big feature of these uh, network-mediated markets. And we can see that in any of these uh, modern firms, but maybe the clearest way to see it is just to recognize that right now, the five biggest corporations in the world are American tech platform corporations. So there's many ways to rank companies by size, of course. The most conventional way is through what they call market cap, the market capitalization of a company. It's where you take all the stock in a company, the pieces of ownership in a, a corporation that you can buy, and we multiply the number of shares by the price of the shares. So you can get a hypothetical cost that you would be that you would have to pay to buy the entire company. It's a broad measure of value, and there's other ways to gauge firms like revenue size and others. But market capitalization is pretty common. Well, right now, the five biggest firms in the world by market capitalization are tech platform companies. As I recall from memory right now, the five biggest firms are Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, and Facebook. <laughs> Those are the five biggest. I just want to remind you all, it's incredibly uncommon historically for the five biggest firms in the world to be uh, like all from one industry or one sector of the economy. When I was a younger person some time ago, the biggest firms would be, you know, Exxon, Walmart, Chase Bank, Berkshire Hathaway, a couple of others. Now it's just these straight five tech platform giants are the biggest that speaks to the real ramifications of network effects. These companies are so prone to monopoly, they dominate the list of biggest firms. It's very unusual historically, and that's sort of a manifestation of that. So we can look at any of these firms and their unique features, and there's a lot to say about them. In the book, I have a chapter for each one of these big five giants because they all have a, a fascinatingly sleazy history of absorbing and crushing competitors and bullying tyrant CEOs and so on. But I like to start with the ones that people sort of see as the nice exceptions to mean capitalism, you know. So I look at firms like Google, for example, because Google has such a sweet reputation relative to other blue chip Fortune 500 firms, you know. So Google's famous for providing all these extremely useful services like online search, online video, the large majority of the world's smartphones run on its Android software, and all these other useful functions like Google Drive. It's a long list, you know. And those services are provided for free. And the firm's also famous for very uh, generous employee benefits, you know, high pay, uh, lots of workplace amenities and so on. Arguably free time off through their 20% principle, which actually doesn't hold up if you look into it. But the point is they have a very favorable reputation compared to, you know, Exxon and Walmart and the usual uh, old economy capitalist uh, suspects. But if you look at Google, the history is uh, very interesting. So one, of, one feature we should start with is that you might wonder, okay, I've been talking about network effects. 
why, like what connection does Google have to network effects? If I search for something on Google, that doesn't make Google more useful to you, does it? But of course it does, right? The nature of uh, web search is it's algorithm driven, right? Well, it's a manifestation of the network effect. You may not like to hear this, but I have to tell you, Every search that you have ever entered into the, YouTube, into the uh, Google search field is recorded by the firm. Every search you've ever done, and that everyone does, is recorded, but not just that. Like, we talk about data-driven industries these days. It's important to reflect on what that means for something that we normal people use all the time, like Google search. Anytime you use Google search, they don't merely record who you are and your web address location and what you entered into the search field. They also record how long you waited before clicking on one of the search results. They look at which search result you clicked on and also whether you were happy with that search result which they call the long click, where you click on something and don't come back, which suggests you were pretty happy with the results of that search. Or did you come back quickly and go, no, that's not what I wanted. I had a different thing in mind, and you click on something else, which says to them the search needs refining. So as every one of us over the last uh, 22 years, since the firm was founded in 1998, every search you've ever entered into Google is useful data for them that they use to refine their various search algorithms. What that means, though, is that the more of us who use that search function, for example, the more, the more valuable it becomes to the rest of us users as that algorithm gets further refined. So Google search really is a manifestation of that network effect. My use of it makes it a little bit more valuable to you. you know. And as a result, we have an environment today where Google search, just as an example, is extremely dominant. And that includes even on, it's certainly Google, uh, dominant on the mobile platforms because of course, most phones run Android software, which Google owns and defaults to Google search uh, whenever you want to search for something and gives them a lot more useful data. And Google is so dominant that indeed the word now is synonymous with search, you know. Yeah, I know that. I Googled it. When your name becomes synonymous with the industry, that's how you know you dominate it. And because of that, we can look at the ramifications of that network effect in search. And indeed, it's been enough to re reduce web search, which is a very, very important market segment. I mean, think how often you turn to that. I probably do Google searches a couple times a day because there's so many things we want to learn about on the web. And the web is so vast. In the, again, back in the 90s, you didn't have Google. You turned to Alta Vista or Yahoo Search or Web Crawler, and God bless them. But they were based on just simple keywords. You know, you type this word in. Well, here's a website that has that word in it. It's a pretty crude search method. So Google's much more sophisticated algorithm was very welcome. And the basic way it operates, of course, is through basically a technique borrowed actually from academia. So when you're a fancy professor like me, you uh, gauge the value or maybe the relevance of a academic article by how many other articles refer to it, like how often it's cited. And we have citation indexes and such that let us keep track of that. Google used that basic premise for its web search uh, algorithm development. We decide how high to rank a particular website in your web search based on how many other websites refer to it. Okay? That's a much less gameable method of uh, operating web search and it brought Google a lot of success. And of course, like most of the big tech firms who now have billionaire owners and are, again, among the five biggest firms in the world, their big justification for themselves is, yes, we're super rich and super powerful, and you rely on us constantly through your cell phone, but we earned that. 
because we developed this software technology through our own work and our own smartness. And so we have this sort of cult of Steve Jobs and uh, Jeff Bezos-like figures who bring this technology to us. If you look at the, the history of it, you'll discover very quickly that the large majority of the technology used in this mobile and online te- uh, these mobile and online platforms it comes from publicly funded research and google's a great case you know again google which you know, has such a positive reputation these free services it's a good example for us to look at well you might know some of you google's original web address that you used to reach it was not originally google.com as it is today originally it was google.stanford.edu because that was the who cares about money, let's do long-term research, campus research environment that is perfect for developing something like Google where you're figuring out a new technology and you're not going to be able to do that if you're focused on making some near-term Wall Street stock price target that's going to constrain your ability to focus on research and make you focus on monetizing the technology. So Google has that sort of background which let them build up this Again, very useful technology. But of course, as we know now, these firms are so dominant. And again, it's not just that they're the five biggest firms. I mean, I can say that. But each of us, I think, knows just from our life experience how much we count on these firms for our modern lives. You look at your phone and you Google something or you watch it on YouTube. You use the phone's operating system to pull up useful apps or to order things on Amazon or to look at Facebook or Instagram. We're all pulling on these firms all the time. What that means, though, is that our reliance on them represents a certain level of importance on their part, or we could say a certain amount of power. If those firms went away, we would, I think, desperately miss them. And as I say, of course, like I use these firm services all the time, so I would agree with that. I would hate for these firms to just dematerialize tomorrow and not be available. The services are legitimately useful. And I feel like sometimes people on the left want to you know, maybe for legit reasons, boycott use of these technologies because of their ugly election interference or their heavy lobbying spending and their various other icky characteristics. I think the services are useful. It's just the firms providing them that are problematic, as is so often the case with capitalism. But uh, the example of Google is good because we use them for so many purposes. And in particular, Google's been interested in how we use their search engine for shopping online. And of course, Amazon, which we'll get to in a moment, is extremely dominant in online or e-commerce. They uh, earn over 50 cents of every dollar spent on online commerce. But Google is their main existing competitor because many people use Google to initiate searches for you know, different products or services, a computer they want to buy, a hotel room, a flight they want to take. Google's very eager to make those searches easy for us. So it's relevant, you know, when we look at their history. And by now, even the mainstream commercial press, like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, who themselves make their money from selling advertising to large firms that can pay, and so they tend not to want to antagonize big business too much, even they are now recognizing the incredible uh, influence that these firms have. So Google, again, uh, there was a long period of time where if you went and searched for a product on Google, you would get at the top of your search results different online platforms that themselves offer online shopping resources. And there is a number of these, and very few of them are known now because the history of it, as we can just, again, see through 
very typical commercial press histories, Google would put these firms high on their search results based on the algorithm, ranking them on their relevance, and so they would do well. Then Google would recognize that they were losing search, like commercial product shopping, search traffic to these platforms, and abruptly, like overnight, these other competing commercial uh, search platforms would go from being on the first page of Google's search results to like page five or page six or lower. And I mean, don't take my word for it. Any business owner will tell you today that getting relegated beyond, like below the first page of Google's reported search results is largely enough to kill that business as far as its online relevance is concerned. I mean, just think about it. Many of us have done just quick and easy, not thinking too much about it, online search for a product or a service or something. And you look at the first couple search results and that basically defines the realm of your, of your search. I'm not saying we're being lazy or lame for that. We're human beings. We have finite lifespans and busy days. We're trying to get through this as quickly as possible. But once Google recognizes another firm is doing that, they will very quickly downrank it. And so, for example, at one point, Google sources have reported that when the platform became sort of annoyed that another firm was sucking up its uh, commercial search traffic, with the example of Larry Page who was one of the co-originators of the Google software in the first place, along with Sergey Brin, the other famous Google co-founder, uh, they reported that Larry thought product should get more exposure. Product, of course, refers to Google's own search products in this case. And what they're saying is we should uprank our own Google search results for whatever it is you're interested in for buying. And we're going to downrank those competing search platforms that do product. Now, that's an example that comes out of business. Like that's Google using its dominance, its semi-monopoly in search to spread that to other fields. Uh, but we should recognize like that is something that's very common for monopolists to do, try to use their existing monopoly to t monopolize and take over other markets. That's how Microsoft first got in trouble by trying to take over uh, the web browser industry. But that speaks to how important these firms are and how much we rely on them. But uh, maybe the juiciest thing that Google is involved in, just to uh, mention this because everyone's always interested in this, uh, Google, for all of its beautiful high ideals, and the point of this, of this isn't that we shouldn't have ideals or hold people to them. My point is these guys are monopolists and they aren't going to stick by the ideals they say they have. So a classic case here was Google and Apple's somewhat famous wage-fixing conspiracy. Now, I don't use the word conspiracy lightly. You know, these days when you say the word conspiracy, people think of Alex Jones and figures like that who say that 9-11 you know, wasn't really terrorism. It was the government. Dick Cheney flew those planes into the World Trade Center. There never was a World Trade Center. Like goofy, not evidence-based, huge claims that are sort of paranoid sounding. That's what we say these days when we uh, use the term conspiracy theory. Well, this conspiracy is what we call legally adjudicated. So this was a criminal court case in the course of which we had the discovery process, right? If you watch uh, law shows on TV, your law and order and so on, you know that when there's a court case, both sides' attorneys get to look at the confidential documents or relevant evidence on both sides. And so that's very exciting for people like me. Usually corporate you know, legal cases don't go all the way to trial. They get settled at one point or another. Because companies don't want their information to enter the public record. So when they occasionally do, like in this case, people like me who research these guys get very excited because, oh boy, we're going to get a bunch of their dirty laundry that they email to each other. 
and see what really goes on. And that certainly happened in this case. So if you're not familiar, this is a big case about some corporate practices from the period roughly from 2005 through uh, 2010. And this was a period when these online tech platforms were growing very, very quickly and becoming the giant firms they are today. Google was growing quickly at this time, and so was the brand new one, which was Facebook at that point. And so it was very difficult if you were a Silicon Valley tech platform to hire out the uh, coders, the software code writers and platform designers who we all know have the you know, fancy jobs of today and who you need if you're going to gradually build out a tech platform that's going to have literally billions of users as these platforms do. So it was a, you know, a seller's market, as they say, if you, were, if you had a... Uh, uh, background in uh, software writing and coding, you could uh, command a pretty high price. So what's interesting is at this time, a number of big tech and Silicon Valley uh, companies entered into a, again, legally, adju legally adjudicated, you don't have to take my word for it, it was settled in court using evidence based on their documents, a legal conspiracy. They, ille they illegally worked together to lower the prices, lower the salaries of the tech coders that they hired using a no poaching agreement, which is completely illegal. That's a wage fixing scheme, as they call it legally. But it's very interesting. The big players at that time uh, were Google, which was one of the quickly growing new firms, as well as Apple's then CEO, you know, the late Steve Jobs. Back then, Apple, even then, was far larger than these other firms, so it had the most muscle. And it appears, from what we know from the limited uh, record that went through Discovery, it looks like the, Steve Jobs was the sort of instigator of this. But what it came down to was Google and uh, Apple and a number of other big uh, software-relevant hiring firms. Uh, so Pixar was one. As I recall, Oracle was involved and several others. But they agreed on a no-poaching agreement. So I might be desperate being Google uh, or Apple to hire more software writers. It's very difficult to find these people and they want giant six-figure salaries and nice health insurance. How dare they? So what we will do is you and me, CEOs, will agree between us secretly, because this is a white-collar crime, will agree not to poach each other's software coders, right? I'm not going to cold call one of your software writers and try to poach them, try to hire them for my company, if you'll agree not to do the same to me. Again, this is a price-fixing deal, a wage-fixing deal in this case, which is not compatible with even America's loosely enforced antitrust laws. It's very interesting because it all came out in court. We have the record of it. So, for example, we have an email from Steve Jobs, who people still like cite as this in, uh, inspiring visionary tech leader who created these beautiful uh, modern uh, Mac computers and our slick iPhone. Even though if you look at the record, it's mostly his engineers who are doing it and trying to ignore his dumb objections. It's kind of an interesting history, I'll spare you. Uh, but Jobs said uh, to Google's CEO at that time, who's Eric Schmidt, I said to them, if you hire a single one of these people, that means war. Now, again, if I said that to you, who cares? I'm just some idiot on the street. But if you're Apple, if you're even then one of the biggest corporations on the surface of God's earth, you're going to take a threat like that at least somewhat seriously. you know. And certainly if you're a somewhat vulnerable, relatively new firm like Google, who relies in part for their search user traffic on mobile phones. And at that time, uh, iPhone was the by far dominant smartphone. A threat from Steve Jobs is a major, major event, you know. So Jobs made that threat. But what we discover is that Google's own management then agreed 
And they said, all right, we won't poach from you if you don't poach from us. And by now, because of that discovery process that goes through court, we now have uh, Google's own human resources hiring documents that indicate that uh, Apple had sp- or Google had special agreements with certain companies like Apple and others and put them on what they called restricted hiring lists, which meant that the, you shouldn't, your HR people shouldn't cold call their staffers and try to hire them over and try to hire them over to your firm. And those do not cold call lists include, yeah, Apple, uh, Google, as well as others like Microsoft, Intel, IBM, and even Comcast, you know, the uh, cable and broadband company. But Apple agreed. It's a picture of powerful private sector figures working together to be sneaky, sleazy scumbags. And so Apple has an internal email, which we can now read, thanks to the court process that said, uh, they wrote to their HR uh, managers and said, please add Google to your hands-off list. We recently agreed not to recruit from one another. So if you hear of any recruiting they're doing against us, please be sure to let me know. And within Google, when their CEO, Eric Schmidt, would internally communicate with his HR people about this, the subject would be, do not forward, like in all caps, which is, of course, online for I'm serious about this, right? Do not forward. And actually, in the body of the emails themselves, we can read, uh, that Schmidt referred to trying to bring more software-heavy firms into this circle of illegal wage fixing by not poaching, so offering these workers less in order to make it easier to hire them and less costly. And he tried to bring in new firms like eBay into their circle. And in one of Schmidt's emails to his HR people, he even says that he would prefer that communication about this be done, in quoting, verbally, since I don't want to create a paper trail over which we can be sued later. And his HR head, in her reply, said, makes sense to do orally, I agree. They're not idiots. Know that this will make a paper trail. I mean, these days we call it a digital trail, but it still holds up just as well in court, you know. And that's exactly what happened. It was the presence of this record, like in a lot of price-fixing schemes that we see in oligopoly. It was that presence of that record that led to these firms being convicted and being forced to make a settlement with a class-action suit brought against them by their software coders. Now, obviously, these workers are not exactly working in the mines of South America that let us have the lithium that runs the battery for these firms and the tin that we use to solder all these circuits together, but they are working people. You know, they are not CEOs and billionaires in today's ruling class, so they may be white collar, but many of us would still say they're still workers. And this is a legally adjudicated corporate conspiracy to lower the compensation these people received. And my favorite part of this episode was at one point a, a Google recruiter who, for one reason or another, didn't get this message or didn't realize how serious it was. And this particular Google recruiter did cold call an Apple staffer, one of their software writers, and uh, tried to recruit them to work for Google. Well, once Steve Jobs heard about this, he wrote a very pissy email to Eric Schmidt at Google and asked him if their agreement was still valid. Eric Schmidt, who to this day you know, from his Google heritage, likes to say that he's very principled and we believe in a good monopolistic corporation and we're not evil. He wrote back to Steve Jobs' complaint and said, and I quote, that this worker would be fired within the hour. And Steve Jobs replied with a smiley face, you know, with a colon and a closed parenthesis to indicate a fun smiley face. (laughs) It's fun, isn't it? When we do that. So that's kind of a particularly hideous Silicon Valley version of wage wage fixing and market power mongering. You're listening to Rob Larson on Technopolis. 
To order copies of this program and his book, Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. These giant companies, their status comes from the unique aspects of network effects, very different source of monopoly power from, you know, John Rockefeller's Standard Oil monopoly of yesteryear and AT&T's telecom monopoly. But it comes from different forces, but it still has that same outcome, which is giant extremely powerful corporations stomping on the working man or woman with, you know, different circumstances depending on the industry. But it's incredible, you know, it's a very different technology, a different technological level, and a very different era that we're living in. And yet the... Well, just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. listening to CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting in Calgary, Alberta, on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, home to the people of the Treaty 7 region and the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary, Alberta, located on Treaty 7 territory and home to Métis Nation Region 3. alternatives that have been kept alive um, in large part by indigenous movements around the world, saving seeds, saving knowledge, protecting ways of living with the earth that were much less vulnerable to being knocked out in a moment, now don't look like a a silly old-fashioned way of living, but actually a much more intelligent So they may be white collar, but many of us would still say they're still workers. And this is a legally adjudicated corporate conspiracy to lower the compensation these people received. And my favorite part of this episode was at one point a a Google recruiter who, for one reason or another, didn't get this message or didn't realize how serious it was. And this particular Google recruiter did cold call an Apple staffer, one of their software writers, and uh, tried to recruit them to work for Google. Well, once Steve Jobs heard about this, he wrote a very pissy email to Eric Schmidt at Google and asked him if their agreement was still valid. Eric Schmidt, who to this day you know, from his Google heritage, likes to say that he's very principled and we believe in a good monopolistic corporation and we're not evil. He wrote back to Steve Jobs' complaint and said, and I quote, that this worker would be fired within the hour. And Steve Jobs replied, 
with a smiley face, you know, with a colon and a closed parenthesis to indicate a fun smiley face. It's <laughs> fun, isn't it? When we do that. So it's kind of a particularly hideous Silicon Valley version of wage, wage fixing and market power mongering. You're listening to Rob Larson on Technopolis. To order copies of this program and his book, Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. These giant companies, their status comes from the unique aspects of network effects, very different source of monopoly power from, you know, John Rockefeller's Standard Oil monopoly of yesteryear and AT&T's telecom monopoly. But it comes from different forces, but it still has that same outcome, which is giant extremely powerful corporations stomping on the working man or woman with, you know, different circumstances depending on the industry. But it's incredible, you know, it's a very different technology, a different technological level and a very different era that we're living in. And yet the economics of it is fairly consistent. And so we see pretty consistent results, even for companies like Google, which have about as immaculate a reputation as any kind of Fortune 500 firm could hope for, you know. So that's interesting. Apple itself is kind of fascinating. Uh, it also has a very idealistic feel. If you personally stroll into an uh, Apple retail store, if you go to your mall or local Apple store, of course, it's very pretty and obviously tech-forward and minimalistic. But if you talk to the fairly modestly paid kid retail workers working there, they really will express to you, and I think it's very real, like they have a sort of idealism to them. Yes, anyone can sell shoes or sandwiches. We work for Apple. And we sell these smartphone platforms that connect people and give you so much value. And many of these apps are free, like YouTube and Google and so on. So you know, we're providing something better here. But if you look at the record, uh, Apple's uh, history is pretty heinous. Of course, Apple originated the modern iPhone in 2007. It took a few years for Google to create a, the Android operating system that powers its competitors from Samsung and then down the economic scale there. But all of today's modern smartphone side effects from you know, people are very concerned these days about how much they're using their phones and how they're not engaging with their friends and loved ones when they get together. Very reasonable point. The thing that strikes me, of course, the most is that these days, like little kids have tablets and phones now. But all of this technology, of course, originates with Apple, which had that original vision of creating this very slick, visually mediated mobile operating system that lets you open so many apps. So Apple phones themselves are a platform, much like YouTube and Facebook are. Their main value is bringing together different users and exploiting the value that comes from that. So it's interesting. And Apple has sort of engaged with uh, people like uh, even their major investors, like Janus Partners, that uh, large investment fund that's brought up the fact that uh, users these days are increasingly recognizing how perhaps not addicted we are to our mobile devices, but extremely, incredibly attached to them, at least. Uh, and that's all interesting for Apple's iPhones is the App Store. 
So Apple is famous historically for building platforms that are what we call closed. So if you used an old Apple Macintosh computer, you could only use certain apps that were written specifically for Macintosh computers. This is why Microsoft is still much more dominant than Apple is on uh, PC computers because they didn't create a closed platform. Anyone can write a program, you know, a software program to run on Windows like a you know, video game. Uh, but that history means that they have very tight control to this day. So if you, like me, have an iPhone, you can go to the App Store and buy different apps that Apple didn't make. So it's not a completely closed platform. You know, you can use uh, applications made by other developers. But Apple is famous. If you read the business press, it's discussed frequently because of how much money is at stake. They're famous for having very tight control over the inventory of applications that appears in the App Store. And they have a whole very opaque process for poor software writers who want to get their game or software in front of different users. They have dozens of criteria that they say explicitly, and they have other criteria which they, are very, which they will say they keep secret. There are reasons that we may turn down your app to appear in our App Store that is used by millions of iPhone users, and we may not tell you why. Maybe we just don't like it. Maybe it competes with something we're thinking of developing. Maybe we're going to steal your idea and make our own native application. That's popular. Uh, it's unclear. So that company, even though it only makes, you know, we, know it's, we associate it with making hardware, Apple, you know, smartphones and tablets and desktop computers, unlike Google and Facebook, which are purely immaterial software online firms, they still have platform economics at play. But uh, also, I definitely want to at least make sure, this being Seattle and all, that we mention one of our other uh, native tech uh, platform monopolists. And, of course, that one would rhyme with Shmamazon. You may have heard of Amazon, the firm. And again, let me just say right now, I'm not trying to get on a high horse and look down on people who use it. I have ordered many things on Amazon in my history. I try to avoid using it for books because I really believe in books and I love them and I love my city's one surviving independent bookstore. And it's terrible. If you talk to your bookstore owner, like they'll confide in you very uh, quickly, I've found, about how Amazon is this terrible knife at the throat of their business that they deal with just every day. And so uh, it's a thing that people discuss commonly in the press, where they'll have people coming in after brunch on the weekend, and they'll come through the store kind of tipsy on mimosas, and they'll look at books, and like, oh, this one's fun. Oh, I like this book. And they'll take a picture of it with their phone, and go home and heartlessly order it on Amazon for a buck fifty less than they would have paid at an actual store that you can go into and hang out and enjoy your brunch buzz and pat the book store cat and so on and make a friend maybe and that's kind of a mean thing to do i really feel like you should try to do the opposite let me just take one moment and mention this the correct usage of amazon is to use it to search for books that you've heard of that you're interested in put them in your in your uh, shopping cart and then go to your local bookstore open up your phone open the cart and put that on the table and go buy me these order me these books and get it through your bookstore that's the correct way to use it but if you look at amazon history it has the same sort of platform aspect to it Again, it's not always immediately clear. You might say, so this network effect happens, this platform economics happen, when your use of, this, of the service makes it more useful to others. How does that apply to Amazon? If I order snacks on Amazon, how does that make it more useful to others? Well, apart from the data hoarding, much like Google and Facebook, Amazon has a mountain of data. It's very consumption-focused more than Google's is, but very you know, valuable on those own terms. Amazon also... Remember that more than half of its sales come from its independent or third-party sellers. 
Right. You know, when you search for something on Amazon, a book or anything else that they offer, often they'll tell you like what their Amazon price is. And they'll also indicate right there on the top of the page, also available from these third party sellers. Right. And frequently people will see that and go, oh, well, Amazon's being open. That's positive. They don't just tell you what their price is and what they'll sell it for, like perhaps like Walmart or other semi-monopolistic retail entities. They tell you what other sellers will have it for. That's nice. What an open, competitive, market-oriented capitalist success story that is. Except, of course, <laughs> that Amazon controls that marketplace, which has a number of ramifications, right? So the majority of its sales, yes, come from that marketplace. They call it Amazon Marketplace. You know, it's independent third-party sellers. Any of us can open up a little branch of our business on Marketplace. It's very user-friendly, easy to set up, and you can sell your products there. But the fact that we're all using that Amazon platform to sell our products creates a network effect, right? People are attract shoppers. People who want to buy something are attracted to Amazon, not just because of its in-store, you know, because of its in-house selection, but because of that large body of independent sellers. If Amazon doesn't have it, someone using their platform for sales is probably going to have it. Right. Well, that creates its own network effect. As I buy things on Amazon, that attracts more third-party sellers as the market grows. And the presence of those third-party sellers, in turn, attracts more consumers. It's its own network effect. It's the, even though it's a very, again, a weirdly different, specific online commercial environment – the network effect of it is very consistent. That's the weird aspect of economics, despite the fact that the field tends to be a feel-good uh, puppet of the ruling class, sadly. Uh, it's, when it has insights, they really do apply across very different markets, and this is a great example of that. So Amazon, of course is a little bit more notorious than firms like Google, not just for crushing local retail and absorbing their demand and their customer base, although they totally do do that, right? Uh, Amazon has a number of especially notorious episodes. Of course, the most famous one was its search for a second headquarters, right? The HQ2 process. And I love Seattle. I love near, living near it. I love coming here. Seattle's great, but it is a costly town, partially because of the booming success of the tech platforms based here, including Microsoft, Amazon, Oracle, and others, and also the fact that our real estate markets are driven by real estate speculators who, let's face it, are heartless, price-mongering douchebags. So we have to anticipate that. But as a result of that, in part, Amazon went on this large, extremely heavily publicized campaign that we're looking to get out of Seattle. We're looking to open a second headquarters, and we're going to bring thousands of jobs to the town that gets this headquarters and, of course, uh, bring millions of dollars in potential tax revenues to rebuild your city's crumbling roads, to fight your small town's opioid epidemic in 21st century America, where small towns have been more than left behind, like actively crushed, you know. So it was very attractive to the uh, administrators and public operators of all these cities. And so we saw over the course of several months, maybe one of the most pitiful spectacles in all American history, which was the city councils and mayors of all these large, small, and medium-sized cities and, uh, and uh, municipalities in America just openly begging Amazon to choose them. And again, I mean, don't take my, my word for it. If you go on YouTube, which is a very useful platform you may have heard of, you'll find that a number of very funny video editors have created several hilarious clip reels of the most abject, groveling, 
just pitiable, like it moves your heart. Pitches from these tiny, no-name towns in America and Canada. God bless these people trying to bring some investment to their town. What you realize is it, sh- it shouldn't come to that. It shouldn't be up to these gigantic Fortune 500 blue-chip jerks like Amazon to decide which city gets to have a future. But of course, in running this thing, they attracted immeasurable publicity value to Amazon, obviously. I mean, everyone recognized what a public spectacle that was. That's obvious enough, I suppose. But also, it's an incredibly visible manifestation of what we not conservative economists call that race to the bottom. When you have incredibly mobile uh, investment by companies who are free to move anywhere they want and close down operations in a city that asks for health insurance for its workers or you know, won't offer you free taxes or free real estate, go somewhere else. We call that the race to the bottom. But uh, with Amazon, it's especially fascinating because, of course, in the end, as we all know, they just completely faced the rest of the country and said, actually, we're just going to go to, Wal- to uh, New York and Washington, D.C., just the two already by far most powerful and important economic and political centers in our republic, you know, New York City and D.C. Those are the two great power centers of the country, and they plan to split it until figures like AOC and other uh, representatives in the state said, well, we expect to have you know, our, our unions have access to your workforce, at least on fair terms, which was enough for Bezos to just walk away despite the bottomless groveling of New York's public sectors, uh, sector uh, rulers from uh, Andrew Cuomo, the governor, all the way down to the somewhat better Mayor de Blasio. You know? So that's kind of an obvious picture of what your uh, platform power can do. But also with Amazon, it's worth mentioning something that I didn't expect when I started researching uh, this sector of the economy, but turns out to be really consistent, which is more than other sectors of the economy – I'm not exactly sure why, but something about this sector leads to its CEOs, you know, the head uh, operators of these large tech platforms. Something about this is clearly correlated with these guys being unusually tyrannical, bullying jerks to their subordinates. And so, I mean, again, don't take my word for it. If you read the, uh, the books about some of these giant firms or even very sympathetic biographies of these CEOs by usually business journalists, you know, people who write for the Wall Street Journal or Business Week or Bloomberg, Business News, these guys are very in favor of these companies because, oh, the value they're creating and the jobs, it's so wonderful. But even their journalistic ethics require them to report that, wow, if you look at what these guys, how they treat their C, their subordinates, it's, it's like really ugly. It's like extremely ugly. So Jeff Bezos is the most notorious of these figures. So Brad Stone wrote The Everything Store, which is sadly to this day, like the main uh, his- book on the history of Amazon. He's not antagonistic to the existence of the company or the services that it provides, but he just looks at the record that Jeff Bezos has with its subordinates, and it's at every opportunity when he's displeased, incredibly over-the-top public shaming of site developers, of executives, management figures. There's no one he's not willing to really... Don't take my word for it. Look at some of the words he uses to really humiliate these people for displeasing him and in front of all their colleagues at work. And remember, the key thing is lots of people are bullies in the world. People have bad childhoods and bad emotional problems. People don't mean to be obnoxious. They're just screwed up inside. You know, that would be the humanist left-wing solidarity view of these people. But if you look at these CEOs when they pick on people, it's their subordinates. 
you know. It's people who they have the power to friggin' fire. And so if you yell back, guess what? That's cost you your job and your health insurance, you know. So it's a totally different, you know, it's, you shouldn't scream and bully people, obviously. But if you're doing it to people who have power over their careers and whether they get promoted or canned at the next uh, corporate performance review, that's a totally different beast. And so Bezos is famous for this, and there's a ton of episodes of it that you can read about in the literature on this. But also, it's not just Bezos. So an example I like to turn to here, who's very similar to Bezos in his history, is Bill Gates. Another local favorite of this area, Bill Gates, great Washington State, Puget Sound uh, native, God bless him, you know. But if you look at it, he, of course, built up his gigantic fortune, which is now second in the world, uh, personally, second to Jeff Bezos, of course. If you look at that fortune, people, uh, like I would say that is, when I talk to people, probably the most common justification for these people and their wealth and the power of these tech platforms is they'll say, well, Yes, these guys may have monopolies, and maybe the public sector developed all their platform technology, fine, whatever. But they're nice guys. They have foundations. Don't you realize that, Professor Larson? They give money to AIDS-resisting charities and public housing bodies. They have big foundations, you know. And it's true. The Gates Foundation is a classic example. It's the largest privately endowed foundation we have. And its gifts are very often very positive to, to activist groups and NGOs and so on. That, I mean, not all the time, but very frequently are doing very, very positive, valuable work in the world. And people will see, see? People will say, look at that. See, you realize these firms are doing good things with their monopoly money, so it's not so bad. But if you look at it, the history is interesting. I mentioned Gates because he's also notorious for being an extreme bully in the workplace, screaming at his subordinates, throwing things at them, and you dare not yell back unless you lose your job. So it's just the worst kind of cowardly bullying bullying you can see. But if you look at Gates' foundation... It's endowed with many billions of dollars, the large majority of which comes from donations from Gates uh, himself. And there's others like Warren Buffett have put in, and that's relevant. But looking at Gates' money, it's very interesting. If you look at the business press reporting on this, like the Wall Street Journal, New York Times business section, there's very quality journalism here. And what we discover is Gates made most of the big you know, like the big nine-figure donations, the million-dollar and up in the billion-dollar donations to his charity during the period when Microsoft was being investigated under its antitrust trials, being investigated for being a monopolist and using it to take over other industries like web browsing and stuff, when he was using his corporate monopoly to monopolize other industries and looking like crap in the press in the 90s, that's when Gates made the large body of his donations. I mean, this is a dark thing, but I have to say it worked. Even then, like the headlines go from Gates, uh, his, his online video deposition is contradicted by the testimony of his own software engineers about how they manipulated the Windows system to keep out competitors like Netscape's web browser in those days. Like, oh, that's an ugly headline. And they gradually over the 90s get replaced by other headlines like Gates donates billion dollars to his AIDS and poverty fighting charity. Well, that sounds better. So you realize is you look at these guys and their philanthropy, like some of that money goes to incredibly positive uh, groups and causes that you could never argue against. What you realize is like a lot of that money is very affordable reputation laundering to these monopolists and their companies. And it becomes like nothing will make you cynical more quickly than looking at some of that ugly history. You know, but it's fairly worked. I will say, you know, I talk about the, these companies and their platforms and their uh, billionaire CEOs and founders. 
very reliably. Someone will say, yeah, but they use the money for good because I've heard of Gates Foundation and, you know, Larry Page and Jeff Bezos, you know, uh, recently put in money to fight climate change because no one else is doing it in America. So I'll do that. And it's very nice, but you know, like that's not an argument for them. I always like to use the reference to kings and emperors, you know, like some kings in the history of European countries and other countries around the world that have royalty and kings. They'll mention like, well, you know, he's a good king because he used some of his wealth and power to help this group of poor people to build this valuable bridge over a river to help our markets grow. And that's nice, but that doesn't justify the power of a king. You know, Maybe tomorrow he has a stroke, or his wife says something mean to him, and now he's mean. And instead of using his money to do nice things for us, he's cutting off all our heads today. Oh no, Like you shouldn't have the power. Figures like Gates and Bezos and our other billionaires, from Trump to Mike Bloomberg, Like, do we want them to have this kind of power? whether it comes from these monopolized platforms or not, people tend to be very reasonably. I think one of the best things about America is that people have a certain uh, sort of skepticism toward powerful institutions and powerful people. And it takes a lot of billions to sort of wash that off them. But you can bring it back very quickly if you remind them of the features of this landscape. So no matter how much of a jerk you are and how badly you treat your workforce and no matter how monopolistic your network effects powered platform monopoly is, With the commercial press who will rely on your advertisements to sustain their business model, you can get them to start saying very sweet things about you uh, if you start doing nice large donations to foundations and such. And I will say the positive aspect of all this is that right now we have a lot of uh, organization going against these things in the United States these days. With the tech platforms themselves, what we see is there's a kind of a surprising to me, a real wave of activism uh, striking back against these companies and Google in particular, which again... I always like to use as an example because of their beautiful reputation and their free services and how incredibly useful they are. I found my way here tonight using Google Maps. Once again, let me say, I rely on these companies' products constantly. But the power they get from them, people can see that. And so Google's had a number of walkouts from its own very select, very trained professional staff because they realize it's using software to develop AI for drones so the Pentagon can blow up penniless people in Yemen more easily. Or because it turns out that they paid off one of the Android mobile operating system developers uh, who left the firm because of sexual harassment charges and they give him a multi-million dollar golden parachute That's ugly, and the workers are rising up about that right now or beginning to organize and deal with that. And so we have entities like the Tech Worker Coalition through the communications workers who are trying to deal with that. I'm very happy to see those uh, processes making some kind of steps. So just remember, like, it's not a a hopeless era right now. I will say if you're on the left at all and you're critical of the power and wealth of these companies, you probably know how long giant companies have been dominant in America and many of us perhaps – you know, gave up hope that we would see something really challenge them. And we, you know, have stalwart figures like Chomsky who give us guidance through this, but we don't expect any big changes. People give up on that. This is a time when we're really seeing some potential change. You know, this younger generation, I'm teaching them, let me tell you, I don't have to push them to the left. It's, it happens when they come in the door. So this is a time we can expect some kind of positive change. You shouldn't be feeling hopeless in the face of how powerful these firms are. Just because they have all your data and know everything about you and everywhere you go and everything you look at online, including that really embarrassing thing you thought of just now when I said that, 
there are rising up forces at this time that you can participate in. Like, this is a time to get into it and put some money in if you can and put some time in. Especially, that's the way to move forward, you know. So I will say, uh, it's, it's not a totally bleak era. And I think if we work together, we can see some real changes uh, in this uh, online platform economy. Regardless of what, specifically what happens in this November... Social struggle is a long process, and I think if we work together, we can really move uh, some of those processes around. So, anyway, thank you for listening. That was Rob Larson on Technopolis. He spoke at Town Hall in Seattle in early March 2020. Rob Larson is professor of economics at Tacoma Community College in Washington State. He's the author of Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. Now in its 34th year, we are independent and are supported solely by individuals just like you. Every week, we feature progressive voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Noam Chomsky, Stephen Bezruchka, Rashid Khalidi, Arundhati Roy, and Kianga Yamata.